Happy holidays from the Mincing Rascals. This is John Williams. Thanks for finding the podcast. Share us with your friends. Not a new episode today, but a full episode that I think you're going to like. We're going to go back and listen to what the Rascals said about some of the critical junctures of the year. We'll start with the NASCAR street race. (laughs) Remember all of the angst and anxiety and traffic and headaches and positivity and negativity we had about that here are the rascals mincing about it you've got john hansen and brandon pope in this episode by the way brandon have returned from washington dc last we spoke you said you weren't going to watch or didn't want to have anything to do with the street race in chicago the nascar event did you watch any of it no but i saw a lot of great clips on twitter and they were beautiful it was it was cool to see the skyline and See some, like, Chicago traffic in the distance of race cars. Like, it, it looked pretty cool despite all the rain you guys had. I know you liked the Southside event, though, too, Brandon. You were big up on well, that leading into it. So that's the thing that I thought was really interesting. NASCAR, I think they really did better than I think a lot of leagues do when it comes to trying to gain new audiences. They immersed themselves and went in places that you don't usually go. And the south side of Chicago is a place you don't really think NASCAR would go. They had a fantastic event that I've heard about with Bubba Wallace um, hosting it called Bubba's Block Party. Um, They had a pit crew there doing some demos of how that goes. They got the kids involved, gave out free tickets to people that were there. Um, Just those are the type of things you want to see happen with an entity like NASCAR coming into the city, actually investing in the people and going in places they wouldn't traditionally go. And I bet you, I I have no numbers to back this up, but I bet you they may have got some new fans or at least piqued some, some interest from people that, may have never even thought about NASCAR before then. Before then. It was that the most was really successful cool NASCAR telecast relative to ratings they've had in six years. And I, wow. I drove into downtown on Saturday, and I got in faster than any Saturday since the middle of the pandemic. The traffic wasn't there. All the fear-mongering we had scared people away, and that was like the people's biggest critique of this thing, was that there would be a traffic nightmare, yeah. and everyone seemed to just be A-OK. Not that no one was inconvenienced, but that it didn't end up being the big thing that people well, were Well, the fearing. week before was no walk in the park. True. When you had Lakeshore Drive closed on that Friday, especially, and everybody had to take the Kennedy in the Thursday night, yeah. too. No doubt that it caused some headaches, of course. I, I, I watched the event on TV. Um, I thought the city looked great. I think they should have made it a little cheaper so that the parks looked a little fuller because uh, some of the wide shots That's and the drone the shots that seemed kind of empty. Huge TV audience. Much better than... Like four times the TV audience of Formula One in Miami. But they were straining to talk about the great crowds. But you never had a big grandstand shot. And, of Mm. course, a lot of that is attributable to the rain. The weather was historically horrible for this, right? Mm -hmm. Like up to seven inches of rain in some places over three that day at Midway or at O'Hare. But they were talking about these jubilant crowds, and I didn't see any. Right. And I talked to a woman who said she she uh, was given the $267 general admission ticket. So she and a friend went. So that's 500 bucks walking in the door, right? She said, we, there were no seats for us. You get to, like, stand about on the fence and watch them go by. For $260 a pop? That's what she said. Wow. No place to sit? Uh, so then because security and the rain and everything was kind of messing things up, they were able to go into the $867 seating area 
So now it's $1,700 walking in the door. And nobody paid him no mind, and they were drinking the free drinks and eating the free food in this luxury tent situation. you got to find a way to let people sit and watch the race for less than $300. Yeah, for That's sure. Crazy. Yeah, yeah and, that, and, that price is bad. Yeah, And just to, for the shots of it looking full, why not charge $20 to – Go attend the festival at least, or something like that. To to see, I know the musicians were all canceled on Sunday, but just to even be within the tent, you know, it it reminds me of when I went to the Kentucky Derby on a triple bachelor party, and I don't, I didn't see a single horse the entire day, but it was only fifteen dollars or so to get into the infield where the party was. And we had such a great time. We probably spent way too much in the beer, and we consumed a lot. And it was great, but at least we were there. The shots made it look full, and I placed a couple bets on horses I never saw. But I think that's a, a, something you could follow. Pay $10, $20, $30 to at least get into the venue space. This is a conversation being had by people that don't follow NASCAR regularly. True. And clearly there were thousands of people who said, 267 bucks, I'm in. 1500 bucks, I'm in. Every now and then they would cut away to those luxury tents and suites and boxes. And those people seemed to be having a swell time. There were people there. I don't know if it wasn't like box seats at Wrigley or the suites where it's corporate dollars and somebody gets the tickets, but average people aren't paying the money to go see NASCAR. I don't think average people have. Somebody pointed out that at a time when most people don't have enough money for a $400 emergency repair of an appliance, you had to pay at least 500 bucks for you and a buddy to go see NASCAR. Yeah. Those, those things just don't line up. Yeah. I was also a little put off by some of the discourse, anti-NASCAR discourse, because ultimately I think a lot of people found a lot of different reasons to in a long way say something that is very short they don't like people that like nascar and they didn't want them in our own backyard i think a lot of people that was they they built up this traffic is bad or oh it's too expensive or whatever it is code i think it was code for me not everybody but i think a lot of people yeah but i think that's because they think those people don't like us they don't like chicago i mean nascar is a southern racing circuit and the idea those people have been spoon-fed horrible things about chicago forever and now we're going to invite you and give you the keys to our city for six weeks to set up your two-hour race are you kidding me fair so well, but I mean, I, I think it's as true as what you just said. Probably both things are true. I, I just because we've had big events here before, and I was just trying to kind of pinpoint what the animosity was. We don't do this so for much. Lollapalooza, right? We don't. We and don't a lot more people come, and they tear up Grand yes. Park. They ruin that thing. Man. And, and there's the general complaining, but it's not as vitriolic as this was. And even to the point of after the fact that it ended up not being the traffic nightmare that it was, a lot of people thought it was successful. People still holding on to this like never again we can't let this back next year and i I just think there has to be an element of that i gotta admit and i I tweeted about this john saw it kind of an i told you so thing a lot of this curmudgeon energy was really lame like a a, a lot of it was just really really lame just the the groundswell of it it's almost like just hate into hate at at one Mm -hmm. certain point and i'm just like guys Maybe there's a point to this. Maybe, yeah, you don't want the people that like NASCAR coming into the city because they may have bad views in Chicago, but maybe this is a chance to show the good of Chicago. Maybe this is a chance to say, hey, here's how good we are. Here's why we're a world-class city. Here's why we're a deserving backdrop for this world-class event. 
and maybe we change some people's minds, right? But this this wave of negative energy that just kept coming along, even as a person who had some of the negative energy, I got sick of it. I'm like, all right, guys, at some point, just gotta let let this happen, let it rock, and see how it goes, right? Like, come on. I was um, deluged with positive responses the next day, <laughs> Monday. Yes. Brandon, our email and text line was filled with people going, uh, just what you said, you know, boo Chicago, too violent. I don't want my kids going there. My friends out of town would never come here. We loved it. We thought it was the most amazing. It looked fantastic, either because they saw it on TV or because they were there. They, I'll bet the ratio of negative to positive comments was 20 to 1. Yep. I would say the thing I was in for Lisa right after you. And for the most part, everyone was thrilled by it. And then it comes to this point of, do you give Lori Lightfoot a little credit? That's John Hansen with Brandon Pope in a previous episode of The Mincing Rascals. And I would say ultimately the answer to that question, John, was no. Okay, up next, as America continues to process the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, earlier this year, three major court decisions came down late in the term. So here in an April podcast, John Hansen and I talk about these rulings once again with Brandon Pope. Our Supreme Court has made some supreme decisions lately, asking what race an individual is on a college application will no longer be permissible at institutions that receive federal funding. That was a 6-3 party line vote. There is an exception to that, as I understand it. The military academies uh, will still be permitted to consider race per se, so as to ensure that the military maintains a diverse core of leaders. It's interesting that they say it's very important to the military to have a diverse core of leaders because it has a diverse population of of people in the military, as though that's not true for every other facet of our life. Yeah, but John Roberts was saying that it's essential to national security to have the diversity of the military. Sure, maybe that's supreme, but I think these other institutions and facets of our lives are so important that, well, we'll get into it here. Uh, College debt cannot be forgiven by executive order. The Congress can do it. The president cannot. And a divided court ruled that a Colorado Christian web designer can deny same-sex couples her services. The trend maybe isn't too surprising. It's a conservative court. Uh, What was foremost on your mind this week? It was an interesting docket of cases And they left the three most impactful ones to the end, like they often do. But it was an interesting uh, set of cases in that a couple weeks earlier, we find that the court rules in two states that they must add a black majority uh, for over gerrymandering. They have to add a black majority uh, district into some of these states. So there were some decisions that the left was very happy about before these uh, super majorities came down, the 6-3 decisions. I don't know. It's exactly what we expected for all three of them. I don't think anyone is surprised by any of them. The the, the way the court goes and reads, and I really, and I talked about this on Let's Get Legal, the more people that could actually read some of these decisions and dive into them, I think we would... um, it would calm us all down a little bit on both sides of the aisle. I read all six opinions that were written, the majorities and the concurrences and the uh, uh, I can't remember, the dissents for the um, for the uh, affirmative action case. And each 
one of those opinions, I found something interesting, an interesting nugget, even if I completely disagreed about it on it. And I found the reasonings completely wrong in a couple of cases. I, I'm rambling on here, John. I guess I'm not surprised by what did the sources have, are. Uh, what did you think about the um, vitriol exchanged by the justices themselves at each other? I think it's escalated over the past couple of years. Court historians have said that on our show, that the calling out specifically of, of arguments is not new, but it is definitely picking up in intensity now. Let's talk affirmative action first. I mean, these are all doozies. <laughs> what a sad day for America. I think about Thurgood Marshall, the, the trailblazing Supreme Court justice who ushered in so many great things for, for civil rights and equity and inclusion for black people and people of color overall. And then you have a guy like Clarence Thomas, who was able to be a Supreme Court justice because of what Thurgood Marshall was able to do, including affirmative action, tear it down and argue so vehemently for it. And also this back and forth he had via the opinions with Ketanji Brown Jackson. What are we doing? It just feels like this whole country is trying to turn the clocks back. Affirmative action in higher education, we got to dispel this myth that the Constitution is all about colorblindness. That's just not the case. Um, and there's nothing in the Constitution that squarely goes against having race-applied policies. We do these things not to exclude people. We do these things to include more people. We do these things to make sure more people have a chance at an education. Uh, affirmative action already exists, in a sense, through legacy admissions and people who are, are brothers and sisters and, and kids of different alums and wealthy donors, right? They get in, and now they get a leg up, right? Affirmative action was put in place to make sure that black kids, Asian kids, Mexican kids have a seat at the table as well and the same opportunity to get an education. So to dismantle that altogether, um, I'm worried for what it means. There are some people that think maybe this helps HBCUs and helps attendance at those historically black institutions. But it shouldn't have to be that way. It shouldn't have to be that, oh. Black people, you're relegated to this, these schools now. You should be able to go seek an education wherever you're qualified to do so academically. It's a disheartening decision. It was sad to see, and it just, it's sad to see the direction this country's taking through this extreme court. Turning the clocks back on things that just seem like key, pivotal parts of American life. Affirmative action, like what, what white person has it hurt? I'm just, it, I'm just so baffled why it was even a thing that needed to be slashed. So, well, um, I'm sorry, but what the the white person it's hurt is the white person who qualified to get into the University of Illinois or Harvard and didn't because there's a finite number of avails and a person of color who qualified to get into the school, 100, percent but maybe subjectively was not as competitive as the white guy no because because it could be the other case too because it, it, it oftentimes that is what's, what's happening oftentimes without affirmative action you have academically excellent minority students who don't get in against a we'll say a white student who is not as academically excellent you're talking just, about like legacy people that are let into the to the absolutely, colleges absolutely it just it, this just I was surprised that the legacy numbers were as high as they were at Harvard. They are, especially at Harvard. That's I embarrassing. Mean, I mean, but Notre that, that Dame, not far from here, their legacy really? numbers are crazy as well. Like, that's the thing. Affirmative action helps 
add a little bit of some sort of balance. Well, there has been a lawsuit filed now against Harvard as quick as you can be Careful about what these you ask for. legacy Not that emissions. Harvard asked for this, but are you guys um, at least persuaded that it's not as cataclysmic as you might think at first? Because John Roberts said you can mention your race, just just position it as an obstacle that you had to – that is, racial bar- barriers put up because of your race and are a, things you had to overcome. And it's applied yeah. to you as the individual. It's you making the case why you belong in that college as an individual. I think that's a fair point to make that instead of assigning points – and quotas were outlawed long ago – but as, as, as opposed to just generally offering people of certain races and backgrounds a, a per, ported leg up in terms of points or however they determine who gets in or who doesn't make the individual case for why you belong don't just check a box explain that exactly and i don't think that's the worst thing i think a lot of college admissions are going to be looking at that as a way to to move forward i was really surprised when i started digging into the polling about how unpopular affirmative action really is me too including in the democratic party yeah and that's why, just from a political perspective, it does put a little bind on the Biden administration on their reactions to what they can do in the court. And that's what makes me sad about this. If we could, in each of these cases, find instances where there's a workaround or where it's maybe not shocking because we know a lot of the people in this country feel this way, but it, it doesn't have to be as impactful as maybe it felt at first blush. But in general, I was just left with a sad feeling. Kind of everyone was like a kick in the gut like, yeah, that's the way we are. And why do you people all feel this way? Why do you champion a web designer who isn't even designing websites, maybe for a client that doesn't exist, by the way? Right. Why are you cheering that on? Why do you care that much? Except you've got some hate in your heart. And that's the thing that makes me sad. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's a married couple will still be able to get their website and this person should be able to make a living and if you two aren't going to do business together maybe you never would have anyway right but i hate the fact that it sort of affirms those feelings that like yeah that's how we feel and we're going to support your stance on it yeah the colorado one was interesting not not only for the fact that this woman lived about three miles away from the baker that didn't want to bake the cake for the gay couple that was ruled by Justice Kennedy years ago. And this is all set up by the fact that Justice Kennedy in his ruling, which said that the bakers don't have to bake a cake for a gay wedding, didn't really take a very great side on it. It was a very narrowly drawn ruling. If you read Neil Gorsuch's opinion, it's very similar. I actually don't think the Supreme Court knows what to do with these issues. What is more important, your religious freedom to practice your religion and how you believe it, or the freedom of speech and not to be compelled by someone else to endorse that speech? Answer that question. There is no answer. It's impossible. I actually read the Gorsuch opinion, and I actually appreciated him laying it out. I disagree that they consider a website designer an artist when she simply designs a template that people plug in information and their website appears on a... Oh, she wasn't custom crafting one for a gay couple? Not really. Well, she never did, number one. And number two... Even if she says she custom crafts it, she's using templates to design it. And when you go to this website for this gay couple, Harry and Steve, you're not thinking that it's the website designer who's endorsing the speech of a gay marriage wedding. Where's her Where's her marketing even on it? Like the lower right-hand but side. But if your core beliefs were really that homosexuality is a sin, it must make you feel uncomfortable to now have to craft a site that will... Right. Will honor that. What if you're a Muslim and someone wants to craft a site with a cartoon displaying Muhammad in some way, which is completely against your 
religion as a Muslim website designer. And they brought up these decisions in, in oral arguments. They, they all brought up – on both sides. There was a slippery slope on both sides of that argument. Do you compel speech from people because they run a business, to, that they're an artist, or do you limit speech? It, it was this fascinating oral argument. And that's why Gorsuch's opinion, which is very narrowly drawn, essentially saying that this website designer – singularly, does not have to do this one thing. Leaves the door open, there's going to be hundreds of more cases that relate to this free speech versus religious freedom argument. Thank you, John Hanson. Okay, what would 2023 have been without the Safety Act and deliberations about no cash bail? So let's start there from our September 20th episode. Hey, what's up, guys? Brandon Pope here, host of the now Emmy-nominated TV show on the block, powered by Block Club Chicago. I'm um, host of WBEZ's Making Podcast. Congrats. I didn't hear that news. Nice drop there, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, this is this is Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a weekly Substack newsletter, former Tribune columnist. And if I had a vote for the Emmys, I would vote for Brandon Pope, but oh, I don't man. have a vote. So, That's so nice. So, I will try to uh, rig the election somehow. <laughs> <laughs> At least vote twice. We just need what? T- we just need 20,000 more. Just 20,000 more. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make our calls. <laughs> the no-cash-bail provision of Illinois Safety Act has passed judicial review. It's been deemed constitutional, and now it's law. So as of Monday of this week, you're either in or you're out of jail. Money won't help anymore. So how are the judges doing is the question in Chicago. Have you been watching the news to see what happens when someone drives drunk or assaults a girlfriend or pepper sprays police officers or throws a chicken sandwich at someone? I have been, and I've noticed that mostly people don't go to jail. And sometimes they give them electronic monitoring, but everybody then has a court date later on. Well, look, we were told that there was going to be chaos on the streets and that criminals were going to run rampant. And hide your kids, hide your wives. Um, and uh, I don't see any of that. It, it went it seemed like it went without a peep mostly. Uh, we saw some we saw a county um, actually not go forward and do what they're supposed to do by law with the Safety Act. And we saw a few snags in some some smaller counties. But aside from that, everything I've heard, especially from DuPage, from Cook, it's been pretty smooth, and part of that's because they've been prepared. The DuPage County uh, State Attorney uh, Berlin, he, I had a talk with him where he was talking about the, the, the details and preparation they went through. They went through mock trials. They sat down with police officers and went through different scenarios with them. So they've been, prep- they've been preparing pretty heavily for this, and it rolled out pretty smoothly for those that did prepare for it. It is a big change, but it's now the norm. It's about to be the norm here in the state. Yeah, I don't see any problem developing yet and you know obviously this is one of those situations where time will tell whether this has a a, a negative impact on society or not the the idea behind this reform is that whether or not you have money should not influence whether you're held behind bars like if you committed domestic battery if if you're a threat to your spouse or to the community or a flight risk then you should be in you should be in jail awaiting trial. If not, it shouldn't matter how much money you have, whether you're walking free. And, and it's sort of it's a new standard that they that they can't just say, well, we'll we'll set a bail so high that you can't get out. Uh, and and you know that's just that is essentially criminalizing poverty, which we just don't want to do. And 
again, if it does, if it doesn't work, if it looks like well, the justice system just can't handle this, then we may have to go back and and change it. But I see no reason why it shouldn't work. Um, but you know, yeah, and I, I've been re- I've been reading the same stories you have, John, about um, you know judges wrestling with this stuff and and, and letting people go. And um, again, it's going to be there's going to be anecdotes of people who are let out and commit crimes. That's for sure. That's happening already. People who are who bond out commit crimes. I think we just have to realize that there's some fundamental moral fairness to this that supersedes this idea that we can set bail high enough to keep people locked up who, if they had money, they wouldn't have to be locked up. Yeah. I think underlying that is the notion that uh, you're already guilty. You wouldn't be in this straight. You would not have been arrested if you hadn't done something wrong. That's almost always true. But the system still doesn't work that way. You still have to be found guilty before you're punished. So you should get out. Better to take care of your family, go to work, mount a defense, that all makes sense. But people are still frustrated. What should happen when kids close off an intersection and jump up and down on cars? Should they be charged? Should they go to jail? What happens when somebody pepper sprays a police officer, as one woman was charged at the Mexican Day celebration, Independence Day celebration? But I think a lot of that is born of frustration and anger at what happened. But technically, those people are still not guilty of any crime. John, but right, even the system right now, if a judge decides or the judge and the prosecution decide that these this woman who pepper sprayed a police officer, if they feel that she is a flight risk, if she is a danger to the community, if we let her out, then by all means, uh, keep her locked up. And, and, they, and there are certainly crimes that for which people are going to be locked up before trial. They're not yeah. going to be uh, let go. Uh, the idea that, well, if this, if this, okay, let's say we set a $10,000 bond or something like that on this woman. If she's got the money, she can walk free. But if she doesn't have the money, she can't. That's 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 just wrong to me. I mean, as as I see it, so I hope that the justice system rises to the challenge of figuring out who's a risk and who isn't a risk. Because th- this is it is destabilizing to families and communities if people are locked up and they they can't make money and they can't help their families and 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 so on. So if they are found not guilty, and I know that doesn't happen a lot. But it does happen. There, there are people who are wrongfully arrested and, and uh, deserve their day in court. I think a lot of these cases, too, like the DUIs, pretty much you go home. That woman is probably not a serial police pepper sprayer. Mostly these are one-off incidents in people's lives. So the fact that you release them pending a court date doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do it again. And the evidence in other municipalities and states where laws like this are in place shows that mostly people don't commit crimes at a higher rate than they did before. And they over 90% of the time, they show up for their appointed court dates. So you don't have to keep them locked up. But what this whole thing has done is shine a light on the kinds of crimes that are being committed and what does happen. When's the last time we had a conversation about you know, the kind of nonsense that these judges have to deal with every day, and what should the system do with them? We do not have enough jail space for everybody that people want to put in jail. Cost money. That's the thing. It's it's a it's an issue that taxpayers should care about. Like this is this should ease things for taxpayers as well. But yeah, we got to get the kinks worked out. I just I haven't seen many kinks yet. Um, and obviously, you know, people who are high risk, I have no doubt they're going to be dealt with. Uh, they work to make amendments. Where they got to make sure now that they're also a flight risk too, 
And yeah, if they're a, you're a flight risk, you definitely are someone that is too dangerous to be out and, and about. So we'll have to see how it plays out case by case. But so far, I'd say if you were to give it a letter grade, it's been at least a B plus, if not an A minus. Yeah, and I would say it's a uh, it's an incomplete because are we right. going to see a spike yeah. in crime? Is now everybody going to go AWOL? So far, the answer to that is no. Okay, one more topic for the rascals to revisit. The big topic this year, what to do with the migrants, where to house them. What are we going to do about that? In this episode, Eric Zorn and Brandon Pope and I discuss. Hannah Meisel just chimed in. Uh, You may have heard the bling. She's the state government and politics reporter for Capital News, Illinois. And by the way, producer Pete, Hannah, welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm just going to read your bio here that producer Pete produced for us. You were also voted class clown in high school, according to (laughs) Twitter. That is true. That is true. Capital News Illinois is a nonprofit news service operated by the Illinois Press Foundation, providing coverage of state government to newspapers throughout Illinois. So you guys do reporting kind of like an Associated Press or somebody like that and provide it for other places to repost or reprint. Is that it? Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, it, the CNI started in early 2019. And, you know, the Associated Press, unfortunately, has disinvested in the Illinois State House, even though we love John O'Connor still, uh, the AP reporter can't do it all. And so that's the idea behind CNI. So how long have you been doing this then with them? I have been with CNI since uh, this past, this January. So, you know, uh, nine months, but I've been reporting on the state house and state government uh, for the last 10 years. We did want to talk about the migrants that are still coming to Chicago, which you have been writing about, from South America via Texas. A couple older persons in the city want Chicago to look at moving some of the new arrivals to other cities, even red ones. Meanwhile, suburban Chicago township of Joliet is saying that they should turn down over $8 million to help care for them. We didn't ask for the migrants, they say, and we want neither them nor the money to help care for them. In a letter to the president, Governor Pritzker says the federal government is abdicating its responsibility for these asylum seekers. J.B. chastised the president for a lack of intervention at the border, and he reminded the president that the current expedited plan to get Venezuelans working here is is going too slowly. This is a kind of sensitive area. Uh, J.B. Pritzker is a strong ally of President Biden. When Biden was here in June, Biden said the governor was one of the people most responsible for getting me elected in 2020. Governor Pritzker rallied really hard to get Chicago to uh, be able to host the DNC uh, next summer. And this is an issue that, you know, affects DNC's prospects because, of course, one of the main goals for these uh, Republican leaders, uh, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas uh, specifically, kind of embarrass leadership in these blue states, in these so-called sanctuary cities. Sure, in theory, you're a sanctuary city, but what's it like when you really get a bunch of people on your doorstep? And of course, you know, to use these you know, they're people. They are people who escaped from unimaginable things in their home countries, uh, Venezuela experiencing a, an economic and political collapse. And so to use people as political pawns, always horrible. That being said, we have to deal with reality. And Governor Pritzker is saying, you know, hey, federal government is 
so disorganized. It's making our jobs so difficult. Something as basic as why doesn't the federal government have kind of a handle on when people are coming into the country? Uh, it seems like they're kind of just let loose after Customs and Border Patrol right. uh, detained for a bit. Right. And so, you know, if the federal government could step in and uh, at least uh, have some sort of oversight of the transport of these migrants to Chicago and other cities, we could at least know when they're coming instead of just being surprised by the busloads that are arriving. At the end of August, it was only uh, 13,000 migrants that had arrived in the last year. Currently, we're standing at 15,000. So that's a 2,000 increase in the last month. And we're expecting it to get uh, possibly 20,000 in the next week or two. I mean, this is an incredible statistic. They're talking about maybe 20 to 25 buses a day, five days a week. That's like 5,000, then 50 people on a bus. They're talking about 5,000 or more, 6,000 new migrants every week coming to the city. Those are, those are numbers be, almost beyond imagination. Are, are the, do you think those are true? And if they are true, what are we going to do with, with all those people? Where can we possibly put them and feed them and keep them safe and keep them you know, just keep them healthy? That's the, that's the question. It's unimaginable the number of people who have come here already. Some have kind of integrated, been able to integrate themselves into, uh, you know, Chicago. But if you come here and you don't have any connections, you have no family, you have no distant, uh, you know, friends or friends of friends who can possibly support you, that's where you get the situation that we're in now. Uh, these people, they're not able to work, uh, which is another thing that uh, states and cities uh, like Chicago and Illinois have requested the federal government allow you know, kind of expedited processing of work permits. But if you're not allowed to work and you're, you don't know anyone, you know, you're going to be basically allowed to languish in places like police stations, in the airports. Volunteer groups have really borne the brunt of yeah. trying to help yeah. these people. Um, you know, there have been, I think it was at last count, maybe 16 shelters set up by the city. That's just, it's just not nearly enough. The idea behind sending money to places like Joliet Township, which uh, you had mentioned, John, uh, earlier, uh, Joliet Township is the one that requested the money, the city of Joliet, which yeah. is a uh, municipality. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, they said, well, we don't want this. You know, they're, they're a separate municipality. I guess they want to refuse the $8 million that Joliet Township had applied for and got. The city of Chicago cannot be the only community on which these people have to rely because this is such a tremendous. But Joliet did not declare itself a sanctuary city. I think that's part of the thinking. They, they, they said we didn't ask for this, and and we don't want the money because then we'll be beholden to spend it for the care of these people. I I want to go back to a point that you made a moment ago, and I think it's so true that where is the federal coordination of this after their allowed into the country, the president's office and the Congress seem to have no interest or ability to manage or track them. It's just like we just throw them off into the wild. The city of Chicago just created and hired a chief homelessness officer, a CHO, $150,000 for somebody to coordinate the care of the homeless people in the city. Why don't we have a migrant czar or something managing oversight of this federal problem? 
if I'm not mistaken, I don't I don't think we have anything like that. That no, was, I believe, exactly. what Pritzker asked for, right, Hannah? Wasn't that in his letter? That was exactly what was in his letter. He said, you know, there are too many people in the administration that are dealing with separate parts of this process. Please, for the love of God, you know, create one office, one point person, so that uh, city and state leaders can coordinate with them. Because right now, you know, the people that you do have who are in charge of the different parts of the process, they don't seem to be communicating. They're very siloed. And then nothing gets got done. Hannah, is there any indication at all, you know, with the with the cost of ballooning, I mean, more than $300 million between the state and the city of Chicago together, that Chicago or the state overall just says, hey, we've had all we can. We've done all we can. We got to we got to pass the buck somewhere else. Like, has there been any indication of that or is it still kind of like welcoming cities is what we have to do? John did mention up, uh, at the top that, you know, there was possible consideration of sending people to other cities. Uh, New York has already done that. Some of the migrants who have come here through O'Hare, they have been flown from New York where they had originally gone. It's the goal of these Republican leaders, these border state leaders, to try to embarrass cities and states that have said, we are a welcome city. So to kind of throw in the towel and say, well, you know, there are too many, that would kind of feed into that. Um, So I don't think that we're there yet, but uh, I'm not ruling out getting there at some point in the future. It would be ironic if we then put people on buses and sent them to Oklahoma City. That would be as inhumane conceptually is what Abbott is doing to these people. This is a problem that does require the sort of federal response that the pandemic required. Uh, I know it's a, it's a, in a different scope, a different scale, different levels of actual human tragedy at this point. But if you look at what, say, Brandon Johnson is dealing with in his first few months as mayor, and you look at what uh, Lori Lightfoot had to deal with in her first year as mayor, uh, these are, are is a problem so staggering, so large, that it's going to just make it impossible for Johnson to do anything that he wants to do. There's going to be no money for anything. If we're, if we're spending, I, I, you know, I don't even know what the latest figures are going to be, but we're going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars creating these uh, tent cities and handling the uh, educational demands, the healthcare demands, uh, security demands for for this migrant population. And at the same time, you've got a, a city that's kind of in an uproar. There were some stories uh, just last night out of Amundsen Park. They were going to use the field house to house the um, the migrants. And the community out there was just it was furious about this. And I can't I don't even know yet. And I, I maybe I've missed it. But where are these tent in, tent cities going to go? Uh, which parks are going to welcome them or which vacant areas are going to welcome them, which neighborhoods are going to welcome them? Because I think a lot of people are very cool with the idea of, yes, we're a welcoming city, and yes, these people have suffered, and yes, we need to welcome them, but not in my backyard. You got that right, Eric Zorn, and I'm John Williams. Thanks all year long to the panelists that make up the Mincing Rascals. Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, the Illinois Policy Institute's Austin Berg, John Hansen from WGN Radio, our friend Brandon Pope from Block Club Chicago, and of late, we've been lucky to welcome Kate Plies and Marge Halperin. You'll hear more from them in 2024. And we hope to hear from you. You can always email the podcast via me. I'm John Williams at WGNRadio.com. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. And we look forward to talking to you when we drop another new podcast next week.